Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Thanks for choosing to tune into this episode of the World Nomads podcast from wherever you get your favourite podcasts with myself, Kim, and Phil, in which we will explore China as we launch our latest guide, China, Where Nomads Go. I just have to warn you, Kim has given me all the hard words to pronounce. <laughs> I always do. <laughs> In this episode, we will only scratch the surface of China because it's such a huge country, which is why we'll have a link to the guide in the show notes, where our travel writers will take you the, to the depths of Banziaku Reserve. Seriously. <laughs> to see a submerged section of the Great Wall and to the surf culture in Huhai Bay. The guide focuses on those undis- where was that again? Who high? Thank you. Uh, the guide focuses on those undiscovered and less visited areas of the country because we want to inspire you to explore parts of China you never knew even existed. And you didn't feel inspired to learn how to pronounce those. <laughs> they did a better job than me. Okay. Well, as we will in this episode, take you off the beaten path. We'll explore Sichuan's alpine wonderland. Note, I said that myself. Yep. Chat to Josh who moved to. Way, uh, right to the very west to an area of China that borders Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Notice I said those all. <laughs> and hear from a photographer who was one of the first Westerners to visit the country and take pics. Um, before we get into it, a few fun facts about China. Every year uh, is represented by one of 12 animals. This year, 2019, is the year of the pig. Put together, all of China's railway lines could loop around the earth twice and more people speak Mandarin, the Chinese dialect, as their first language than in any other language in the world. Okay, when you want to know something about a country, Phil, you have to go to an expert. Yes. And Janice has lived in China for 20 years. So she's aware of how the etiquette and the customs differ from province to province, uh, which is why she features in the guide. And it would be remiss of us not to grab hold of her now and find out a few of those things that she's picked up on how to make life easier in China. Hi, Janice. Hi, Kim. Hi, Phil. So the first thing that you, you say in your article is to stop stressing about chopsticks. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I mean, um, I see a lot of um, you know, friends and visitors come from overseas and we go to a restaurant, um, Chinese restaurant or a dim sum place, and they look at the chopsticks and they start looking really nervous. I mean, and you know, I think... Food is all about really just, you know, having fun, exploring the culture. And, you know, chopsticks are a really small part of this, actually. Chopsticks are just there so you can deliver that dumpling into your mouth. And that's that's really it. Um, and there's, there's no need to really stress about it. As long as you get it in your mouth and not on the table or the floor, then it's great. But if you wanted Western utensils, are they available in most places? Um, I would say um, it depends on what kind of place you're at. If you're at a pretty local kind of place, and um, uh, they might not, uh, but you know, it's it's okay. Uh, they'll they'll definitely have spoons, so um, that's always a good thing. So what you can do is actually pick up your chopsticks and just sort of shovel 
things onto your spoon and use the spoon to deliver the food to your mouth instead. Like I say in the article, it's just a means to an end. But there are a couple of no-nos with chopsticks, right? Yeah. Like, so if you're um, sort of talking to someone, for example, and you're gesturing with your hands, make sure you put the chopsticks down first because to point at someone with your chopsticks is considered quite rude. Um, and I guess the second thing is um, it might be tempting if you're trying to hold something quite, um, quite difficult. So say like a round dumpling, um, it's tempting to spear it with your chopstick. We teach children not to do it, but if you, if you really have to, it's actually fine. But um, we teach children not to just because it usually destroys the food. <laughs> um, it, you know, if there's soup in the dumpling, the soup just comes running out and you create more of a mess than, than uh, what you began with. So um, yeah, we, we t- generally tell people not to spare their food if they can. Go with the shovel idea. I find that I can use chopsticks, but in the early days, I would get as close to the food as my nose possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it, it, yeah, I only had about an inch of space to be able to shovel it all in. <laughs> yeah. Now, Chinese food, though, it differs for me from any other Asian food, and I'm not, I'm not always convinced that I'm a fan because they use very specific herbs and spices that you don't see, for instance, in Japanese cuisine, which is one of my favourites. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it does differ. Like China is a very, very big country. It's, you know, the size of the US basically. So um, you go from east to west, north to south. Um, the spices or condiments and flavours, flavour profiles are completely different depending on where you go. So if you're in the south of China, for example, in Guangdong, um, near like Hong Kong, um, then the flavours tend to be quite subtle and very few herbs and spices are used. But if you go into the centre to Sichuan, then you get a lot of the famous mala or the numbing spice. Um, so it's that pepper where um, it's usually quite hot as well. And then you you get a sort of numbing sensation on your tongue. Yeah. Um, and then you go sort of north um, to sort of Beijing and further north. And there they use actually a lot of cumin and they eat like lamb and, and um, whereas in the south, it's mostly uh, white meat and and fish um so yeah it can really differ depending on where you are numbing sensation (laughs) that's putting it mildly right (laughs) i have have seen people's hair sweat (laughs) very 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 spicy chili dip yeah yeah i mean the numbing is actually just one of the spices um usually it's combined with a very hot um chili or a series of very hot chilies which is which probably causes the sweat. <laughs> okay, imagine we've just finished dinner. Um, Phil's speared his dumplings and we've all gone, oh, Phil, seriously. Um, and we go to pay for our meal. I didn't realise that almost everyone in China pays with online apps. This is a really important tip. Yeah, um, it's actually, it's just within the sort of, last two, three years. Um, and you know, China changes very, very quickly, um, despite being such a big country. So um, there's an app that almost everyone uses called WeChat. It's actually sort of a combination of social media and kind of all your lifestyle necessities. Like you can you can order takeaway on it, you can, you can get a taxi, um, and you can pay on it. So it's basically linked to your bank account. Um, and you just, there's a QR code and you just scan it. Um, you scan the code at the restaurant, you enter the, the amount and then literally in a, in a split second, it's paid. So if you're a visitor and you don't have WeChat and it's very difficult to get WeChat pay in, um, the, the payment sort of, uh, function, 
because uh, you need a local bank account. Uh, but if you don't have it, um, I mean, cash, you can still pay. A lot of times you can still pay with cash. Or if they really don't take it, then you can just give cash to, to your friends um, that are paying. And, and it's okay. I mean, it's not the preferred way to pay anymore, um, but it's for visitors, it's, it's completely fine. Because the opposite is true of the, you know, pay wave and credit cards that you would take as a visitor there because most of them are linked to, you know, like American banks and yeah. what have you. You're not able to use them there. Is that right? Um, it depends on the situation, but um, in, you know, larger restaurants and chains like coffee shops and things that are global, then yes, you, you can um, probably use your international credit card. But if you're at a more local place um, or if you're at a market or if you're at, um, you know, a street side stall, um, very often they'll, they'll have their own um, little WeChat QR code. Um, and all you need is a mobile phone. And most people, in, especially in cities, have mobile phones. So you just pay the vendor by scanning their mobile phone. But um, yeah, but if, you, if you're in a larger shop or, or, or a mall, shopping mall, then you can um, almost definitely pay with your um, credit card from overseas. In your 20 years there, how, and you mentioned earlier that it just changes so quickly. How, how quickly? What, in 20 years, what have you, what have you noticed? Well, um, WeChat is, is one of the biggest changes, actually, um, I'd say in the past few years. It, it just seems, I mean, these days, wherever you are in the world, people are holding their, their cell phones and they're always staring down at them. Um, and that's the same case in China. But the difference is this one app, WeChat, you can do everything on it. You, from the moment you wake up um, to the moment you go to bed, including all of your activities in between you. That's one of the biggest changes in the past few years, I'd say. So social media, but is it regulated? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely regulated. Everything, definitely everything in China is, is regulated to an extent. I mean, um, WeChat is, uh, it's known that, um, well, it's kind of an accepted truth that um, the government surveils everything. Um, and it's common that on certain days that uh, if you post something, so for example, on June 4th, which is the um, anniversary of the Tiananmen massacre, um, on June 4th, if you try and post anything to do with um, Tiananmen, or um, even if you post a candle emoji, um, you, your account might be blocked for, for a few hours and you won't be able to use anything. And that includes like trying to pay for your lunch. Uh, so it, it is a, it's a fact of life, actually. Yeah. Fascinating article. As I said, we'll share it in show notes and yeah, learned a lot from it. Janice, thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure, Janice. Now, when photographer Mike Emery went to China in 1980, there was no WeChat. In fact, there was no internet or TVs. And according to Mike, people aspired to own three rounds and a sound, being a watch, bicycle, sewing machine and radio. Mike was one of the first Westerners to go behind the bamboo curtain and visit China and take photos. Mike, what did you expect? I didn't know what to expect when I got there. Um, You've seen pictures of China as, as, a, as, a, as a younger person, and uh, really there was is not much information on China available in those days. You did see the odd picture of, uh, of a commune and uh, odd picture of people uh, in the fields, but really nothing of everyday life. And as soon as I got there, I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, 
I always wanted to be a photojournalist, and um, and I thought, oh, I might as well um, take some photos myself. Pretty op- amazing opportunity with the photographs there, because you know you're a, you're a bit of a oddity in yourself there, and of course a very a country that's that's not used to Westerners poking cameras in their faces. So you had a great opportunity to take a particular type of photograph. Tell us about that. Well, I am an oddity, I suppose. <laughs> but um, walking down the the main street in Beijing. Uh, sorry, in Shanghai, in um, in Nanking Road, um, it was a wide road with, with shops and stores, and I'd be the only Westerner. And you, the people they'd be looking looking at you because they, I'd say, almost all of them never never seen a Westerner before, or even never sort of tried to speak to a Westerner. So I'd probably have about forty or fifty people around me at one at one time. And uh, they all were pushing to see Westerner in bright clothes walking down the street in, um, in in Shanghai. It was very intriguing for them. They would say to me, "Excuse me, may I practice my English?" These were some of the the older people, so the sort of uh, the the students. They did did have a few words of English, and um, which I conversed with. And then suddenly you would have you'd have. Other people tried to ask you questions about all different things. They all wanted to know about um, about the Western world. They all wanted to know about America because um, no information was available for them. The information was given to them what the government gave to them. What did you learn about their lifestyle? I learned a lot of things about their lifestyle. Um, at the time, their lifestyle was simple. It was very pure. It was honest. Actually, it was quite unique. Um, people were extremely friendly. They, they'd spend time with you and um, they were inquisitive. They'd been brought up in, in the commune situation where they would go to work in the fields, whatever job was given to them. They, were, they earned X amount of yuan and to live with and they got accommodation and their, their life was simple. They had no worries. As you see in the book, you look at the faces and um, there's happiness there. There's no pressure of everyday life. Was, there was no hustle and bustle of um, of today's life. Do you think that was a type of pure travel? I mean, we all sort of look for off-the-beaten-path things these days. I think it really was because um, there was no outside pressure. Well, you wouldn't get that experience now in China. Have you been back since? No. And are you surprised yes. at how quickly yes, it's I progressed? Was, I was lucky enough to be back um, in January this year. It it had been 39 years since I'd left, and I thought it was about time to um, to rediscover some of the places I went to and see what the changes that have been in that period of time. We managed to uh, reconstruct several places where I originally took the photos and compared with them, compared them with today's standard. We took a picture of uh, Pudong um, Bay, which you look across to Pudong. It was in those days. It was uh, it was just fields and uh, and ship, little shipyards and boats going past. Now it is the it is a new city of Shanghai, and you just compare with what the Chinese have, have managed to achieve in that period of time. It's just is incredible. It certainly is, Mike. A link to his book, China's Children, A Glimpse of Life in China During the Spring of 1980 in show notes. But, Phil, what's your travel news? Oh, there's nothing worse than getting delayed when you're trying to go off on a trip somewhere. You can't get to your destination, right? Yep. So the passengers on a recent EasyJet flight must have cheered. Actually, they did cheer when an off-duty pilot going on holiday with his family agreed to take control of their flight when the scheduled pilot didn't turn up. (laughs) 
they'd been sitting on the tarmac for two hours, but he, he said he had his licence with him and he got permission to fly the plane and also apologised for not being in his proper uniform. But there you go. That's cool. That's very cool. Still on planes. Did you hear about the, the photograph of this bloke? It's gone viral on social media. A bloke stood up for six hours, the entire six hours of a flight, so that his wife could lie down and sleep across three seats in the middle row. Now, some people are calling him terribly romantic and some people are calling the wife selfish for not like sharing it with him. She might have been sick, I don't know. Yeah, if she was sick, then that's a, that's a great thing to do. Otherwise, he could have sat in the aisle seat and she just put her feet up on his lap. All right, which city do you think had the most visitors last year? Uh, Venice? Nope. It used to be Paris and London. Yeah. It used to be over in Europe, but for the fourth year in a row, it's Bangkok. Oh, right. I was going to say Tokyo. No, Just, Bangkok. Right. Bangkok with uh, 22.8 million visitors. Wow. Uh, Paris and London, about 19 million. And in fourth place, Dubai, 15.9. Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, we're in fifth and sixth. New York, Istanbul, Tokyo and Antalya in Turkey made up the top ten. That wraps it up. Well, it was in 2005 that Josh Summers got married and a year later he decided to move overseas and start a life in China. But they didn't head to the populated cities. Josh and his wife went way out west, the beautiful region of Xinjiang that borders Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and the other Central Asian countries. So why? (laughs) Well, honestly, so the the funny thing is is my wife and I both studied Spanish in in college. uh, (laughs) Really useful out there. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, we, we tried to get a, a part of the Peace Corps and uh, and like getting a couple placed apparently was going to take a year. We we're like, screw that. We can't wait that long. Um, and so it was like a, one of these ideas where it's a, a connection of a connection of a connection that knew somebody that had a job offering for an English teacher. And so that's how we started off. We packed our bags, just, you know, basically a newlywed couple and decided, yeah, let's let's have a little bit of an adventure. So it was just the desire to live overseas that led you to China. And I know that they do offer a lot of teaching positions. So it almost fell in your lap. Exactly. It did. And and I'm glad it did because I don't think I ever would have chosen that place ever. Like it's, it's not one of those places that, that people look at a map and go, you know what? I'm going to go here <laughs> because it's just, it's out of the way. It's inconvenient, but it's amazing and it's gorgeous. Okay. So what was your um, idea of what it might be like and, and what was the reality? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I was told before we went out that it was going to be, um, it was going to be beautiful. I mean, they, I was told there was going to be mountains. Uh, it was a very less crowded part of China, which appealed to me. I didn't really want to go to Beijing where there's what, like 12 million people and there are 20, I think now, I don't know, but just like, you know, crowded in with a whole bunch of people. So the idea of going to a place that was less crowded and in a little more of a, a nature setting really appealed to me. But when I got there, I literally found out the city that we first went to used to be a desert. And the only reason the city exists is because they dug and found oil. And so they literally uh, dug out 
canals to bring water to this place and a city sprung up in the middle of a desert. So I remember driving from the airport of the capital city to this, this other city, which is about four hours away. And just thinking to myself, where are these mountains that they told me about? <laughs> like all I'm seeing is flat desert. And then with 20 minutes left to go on the drive, all of a sudden this city kind of pops up like a, almost like an, an oasis. And there it was. It, the city's name was Karamai. The region is Xinjiang. And that was the start of our time out in China. Stunning countryside. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the great thing is there were deserts, like I was saying, there are mountains. Like when you get an area that big, you really have all sorts of different kinds of, of natural terrain. And, and it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, you know, if there's one thing that I learned being over there and and it's something that kind of caught me by surprise, uh, it's that, you know, the world we live in is not completely discovered as travelers. We kind of go about with the assumption that we're going to find everything in a tour guidebook, or we can look it up on Wikipedia. Everything has been discovered. We, we kind of live under that assumption. And it took me years of living in this really remote place to realize, you know, that's not true. There are places I was, I was finding that even the locals didn't know about uh, things that I was getting to, I'm not going to say discover more like rediscover, um, especially for an English speaking audience and go explore and realize, Hey, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm not even going to say I was a, you know, Indiana Jones or anything, but I'm getting to like play like I was for a little while, you know, and it was fun. 2005, you went there with your, you got married, then you went there with your wife. You since had two sons. Were they born in Central uh, Asia? No, there was one, there were lines my wife wasn't willing to cross and, and giving birth <laughs> in, the, in the kind of rural hospitals was not one of them. So no, we went back to the US for that, but but they returned and went through a little bit of schooling in China. I know you're in a, you're in a city of 3 million people, so I imagine it's reasonably cosmopolitan, but there must be a, you know, a dress style and there must be a number of things which are unique to the air. And I'm kind of guessing you probably stuck out like sore thumbs when you first got there. So oh, yeah. how have you adapted to that? Well, you know, honestly, I didn't stick out as much as my two blonde kids. Okay. Like the, those kids, they, I mean, they would get stopped in the street and, and I mean, people would take them and, and, uh, and take selfies with them. I, I literally had one woman grab my young son, who was, I think one at the time and bring him into a shop. It, I mean, it freaked my wife out. She's like, where are you bringing our boy? <laughs> and, and she was just bringing him in to show her husband because apparently she thought that was, you know, the coolest thing she'd ever seen was this little blonde boy. And, uh, but yeah, we, we would, he would get that all the time. I mean, I, I would, yeah, I mean, as a white, tall, relatively tall, I'm six three, um, what one point eight eight meters, and and so you know, I would get some stares, but but most of the time, people could care less because I kind of looked Russian. People would think that I was Russian, and they'd kind of just, you know, brush me off. But my my boys. They got they got brutal treatment. <laughs> <laughs> Loved to death. Yes. Oh, yeah. Are you still teaching or are you making a living out of your website, Travel China Cheaper? I am making a living out of the website. And you know, that's something else that I've I've learned along the way because most of the travel blogs you see and the ones that I follow myself, they're very general travel blogs. You know, I travel anywhere I want to go and and I've you know I've got blog posts and articles written about places all over the world. And I did something I feel like was just a little different. And that is I kind of plugged myself in one place and stayed there for a decade. And, uh, and, and even after that, I still didn't feel like I was, you know, an expert at the place. They say it takes 10 years to be an expert in anything. 
Really? I haven't heard that before. I mean, yeah. that makes sense. Well, it does it really because does. I said it. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't trust the source yeah. though. So yeah. <laughs> I was able to, um, you know, take and uh, just a, a single focus website. So a, a website, there's actually, let's say there's two of them. I had one that was specifically on our region. And then you mentioned Travel China Cheaper, which is China, the whole of China, and, and really just use that laser focus to, to, to make a living. All right, can we put you on the spot? Give us two or three tips on how you might travel China cheaper. Yeah, well, my number one tip, and I think this goes for all over the world, but it's especially in China, is that China has an unbelievable rail network, right? It, uh, they've come so far in the past 10 years in terms of their high-speed rail. And so you can get from one city to another on the opposite side of China, usually in a day, and oftentimes about 12 hours or less. And what I always tell people is, there are overnight trains. They may not be as fast, but if you can get on a train at 8 p.m., get at your destination at 9 a.m., you've just saved yourself an entire hotel stay. Plus, it's just, I mean, I love sleeping on a train. Personally, I mean, that's just me, but it's a great experience. And so not only do you get a cool cultural experience, but you say, and it's and it's a whole lot cheaper than flying, but you save some money on a hotel. That, that's one of the first things that I tell people that are traveling out to China. Second? Second is if you are willing to get out of your comfort zone in terms of uh, hotels, um, you can, there, there's a rule in China and, and they do this, I think, more to save face. This idea of face is really huge in China and they don't want you to stay in anything lower than a three-star hotel. So technically, legally, you're only allowed to stay in hotels that are three-star or higher, which means obviously more expensive. Now, you can get into hostels um, that are meant for the locals at really cheap prices. You can get into hotels, but you have to be willing to just walk in and say, hey, I'm here. I want to get a hotel without a reservation. And, you know, I've done that. And usually 60 to 70% chance that they'll just say, okay, whatever. And they'll let you in because it's, you know, it's another paying customer for them. And for you, you can save up to half on the, on the hotel stay. And the third tip. I'd say that my third tip would be that um, there is a very little known uh, rule or policy with China's visas that is starting to get a little more attention. And I've written about recently, but it's, it's really confusing. And that is that there is an actual visa free entry into China. Most of the time, especially for Westerners, like a visa to China costs 180 bucks, hundred somewhere between hundred and 180 bucks, depending on what country you're coming from on top of that's the consular fees on top of any other fees with services that you have to do or shipping. And so it can, it's, it's pricey, especially if you've got a family that's going. So if you actually transit through China, so let's say you can go and plan a trip to Japan or Korea and you stop in China and let's say you stop in Beijing, you can stay there for up to 144 hours, which I think is six days. I mean, you can go to the Great Wall, you can go to the Forbidden City, all of those places without a visa and then travel on to Japan and, uh, and it saves you. Gosh, that's, I mean, depending on how big, big your family is, with my family, it would save us like, you know, seven, eight hundred bucks. And finally, can you spell Kyrgyzstan <laughs> without looking, Josh? <laughs> uh, K Y R G Z. 
Z Y S T A N, I believe. Oh, you got your you, your uh, Z and your Y around the wrong way, but yeah, <laughs> not, not bad. Not bad. You were looking, Kim. Yeah, I, I was looking. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for that um, insight into that particular area of China. And my pleasure. Yeah, of course. It's, it was great. I really appreciate you guys allowing me to to join you. Thank you, Josh. A link to traveling cheaper in China in show notes. Now, don't forget to join our Facebook group. By the way, just search for the World Nomads podcast. You can look behind the scenes, get news on upcoming episodes and join the conversation about the show, your travels and people you'd like us to interview. We love suggestions. And please, yes, do contact us. Ronan O'Connell has written an article for The Guide on a beautiful and very remote national park. It's called Zhaozhai Go National Park and it's in Sichuan Province, which is the uh, southwest of China. It's a particularly uh, remote section of China where this is located just on the edge of the Tibetan Plateau, the eastern edge of the Tibetan Plateau. So a lot of people, when they hear uh, the word or the name Tibet used, they think that this refers to just one particular area, almost like a country, but in fact that's what most people think of as the Tibetan Autonomous Region, uh, which is actually essentially a closed-off area of China where you need a specific visa to go in. You can't travel freely, but in fact, bordering that whole area are provinces of China which are not controlled in the same way, but are Tibetan in culture, um, and they all, you know, at one time bled into each other. And so this is one of those areas which is very strongly Tibetan in character and has had uh, was first discovered, as I understand, by Tibetan tribes people more than 2,000 years ago. Um, and it's only really in the last uh, 30 years that it's actually become in any way known to the outside world or, the you know, to most of the people in China because previous to that it was really just a completely cut-off area of China where there was um, Tibetan tribes people living. So... Um, so how did you find yourself there? I mean, how difficult is it to get to and how were you received? Uh, it's the, I've been there two times. Um, so the first time I was there was in 2012 and it actually was, was pretty quiet when I got there. So, uh, I took a bus from a city called Chengdu, which is one of the biggest cities in, in Southwestern China. It's a, a massive city of more than 10 million people. And from there, I caught a bus, took me nearly 10 hours, uh, roughly north of there, up towards the Tibetan Plateau and to this Zhaozhaigo National Park. So those roads uh, are very rough, particularly once you start getting up into the mountains, they're quite steep and um, it's very slow progress, particularly in a bus. So the trip itself is only about five, 450 to 500 kilometres, but because it's such slow progress, it takes nearly 10 hours by bus. But you can actually fly there direct from Chengdu, so that's the other option is that that's only about 45 minutes and uh, that lands at an airport that's on the edge of the Tibetan Plateau at about altitude of around 2,000 metres and from there you can get a 90-minute bus to Zhaozhaigo National Park um, so I think probably it's interesting to even the way that I did it was I took the bus up there and then I flew back. And that way you get to see all the scenery on the way up there, but you also get the convenience of not having to do the return trip by bus, which is a little bit arduous. 
Yes. No, what, no, and what downhill, which can be... <laughs> yeah, with no brakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, they've got brakes. They've got brakes. Yeah. Well, no wonder you say it's truly remote and you also say it's fiercely protected. Why is that? Uh, well, it was basically just a very remote, uh, untouched area which was inhabited by Tibetan tribes people up until the 1970s. And then in 1975, uh, loggers came into the area and started basically just devastating it because this is an old growth forest area. So obviously that's very appealing to loggers who are looking for that kind of prime timber. And they did seven years of, of really serious damage to what is now Zhou National Park. And then in 1982, the Chinese government finally stepped in and decided to declare it one of China's first protected national parks. And so they put in place pretty strict environmental conservation limits. Um, you know, no one was allowed to build any accommodation there. People couldn't start coming in and trying to uh, build restaurants or anything like that inside the park. Very similar to what we have in Australia with the way the national parks are protected. And they also built uh, a limited number of roads so that tour buses could go through the valley. And the, I think the most impressive thing that they did was that they built more than 50 kilometres of wooden walkways, uh, which wind all the way through the park from the very bottom of the valley all the way to the top. And basically the way they've built it is that these walkways skirt the edge of all of the most scenic parts of the valley so that at any given time you're basically in the best possible location to enjoy the view around you um, and yeah I think it's that they've done a very good job of protecting it. It is beautiful. What sort of wildlife exists within the park? Um, there's more than 200 species of bird but <laughs> there are two particularly um, significant animals that are there because both of them are very much endangered creatures and the first is the giant panda um, which is obviously the the kind of in in animal form the national icon of china and this part of uh, sichuan province is one of the very few places in all of china that still has wild pandas left um, and that's one reason that they've really tried very hard to make sure that there hasn't been any development happening in the park apart from just a little bit of tourist infrastructure is because they want to keep this giant panda population alive the fact that they do still live there gives you a sense of how lush and pristine this area is because these uh, giant pandas are as i understand it are pretty picky in terms of what they need from the environment around them. In closing, Ronan, would you say that, you know, despite its remoteness, that this is, is worth putting on your list of places to visit in China? I also think that the advantage of the fact that it has an airport there, that you can go to Chengdu, which is a city that I would recommend extremely highly because I just feel that it's very much an overlooked city. It's really only known because of the fact that it has uh, a giant panda centre there. But... It's the most fascinating city in the southwest of China. It's a huge city. It's got a lot of old neighbourhoods and a really fascinating culture there and quite incredible food, really, really spicy food. So I would definitely recommend that people check out Chengdu. And then from there, it's only a 45-minute flight to Zhou and yet it feels, once you get there, as if you're really, I mean, 
a million miles away from civilization. So yeah, and the fact that it mixes then with the Tibetan culture, because there's actually nine Tibetan villages that are spread throughout the national park, and you can visit these villages and they're still living in very traditional ways. That adds just a whole different element to it. The fact that it's not just somewhere that's naturally incredible, but that it's also got very rare culture that's still surviving there in a authentic fashion. It does indeed sound very beautiful, Ronan. Now, to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at wellnomads.com. In the meantime, where are we exploring next, Phil? Well, it's somewhere that we've found it hard to find people who've actually been there. So if you'd like to get off the beaten path, this is the place for you. It's Suriname. See you then. Bye. 